Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Rebecca Pope Ruark about her newly released book, Unraveling Faculty Burnout, Pathways to Reckoning and Renewal. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Dana. It's nice to be here. I'm so excited to be talking with you today about this book um, and really diving into um, your experiences and your research. Um, So thank you for being here. I I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So in terms of kind of professional life, I'm the director of the Office of Faculty Professional Development at Georgia Tech in Atlanta. Um, Prior to taking on that role, I was in the Center for Teaching and Learning for two and a half years here. And then prior to that, I was a faculty member at a, um, at a university in North Carolina where I, was at, where I was for 12 years. And that was kind of my dream job. That was what my, my life was going to be, was going to be faculty. Um, I teach professional writing and rhetoric, and that was really exactly where I wanted to be. Um, and then life kind of takes you in different directions and, and leads you in interesting pathways. Um, I, as the, the whole book is really about my, my journey through burnout and um, which started as in my role as faculty. So um, that kind of was the was the impetus and the foundation for for everything I've done in the last three or four years now. So um, I am I'm a wife and a cat mom and I love horses and those are all things that help me um, with my mental health and I think that it's really important that as academics and as faculty members and as administrators that we really do need to be talking about the mental health of our staff and our faculty as well as our students. So um, I really appreciate you inviting me to, to talk more about the book today. We are excited to have the conversation. Thank you so much. Um, So as a way into this conversation, let's start with unpacking burnout. So what is burnout and what is it not? Sure. So the World Health Organization defined burnout in 2019 as a syndrome that is characterized by um, chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed, I think is the definition. So a couple of things going on there. It's a syndrome, so they're not classifying it as a mental illness per se, instead as, as a collection of symptoms that people experience. It can also set off other, if you do are prone to a mental illness, um, depression, anxiety, those kinds of things, it can, um, it is comorbid with that. So it can, um, 
it can play off of burnout as well. And there are three characteristics specifically that we look at when we look for when we look for burnout um, in in the literature. Um, and we're really we're really looking. A lot of the the research that we have is um, research, not clinical. Um, it's more professional business research. So a lot of the instruments that we have for um, for de- for um, diagnosing is a wrong word, but for identifying burnout in folks come from validated research rather than clinical research. Um, so the three characteristics that we're looking for when we're looking at burnout are exhaustion. So this is the kind of the bone deep, weary exhaustion. It can be physical, mental, emotional, intellectual, however that impacts you. It could be some combination of all four of those. So really this bone weary, um, consistent exhaustion. The second piece is it defined in different ways, depending on kind of where you're looking, but it's the sense of negativism or cynicism or depersonalization connected specifically with your workplace. So that can be, for example, for me, I use the example that I was really a teacher's teacher. I wanted to be a college professor, a teaching college professor for uh, most of my adult life. So when I got to the point in experiencing burnout where I couldn't be near my students anymore, I didn't want to be around them. I didn't want to talk to them. I didn't want them to find me. I was hiding from them. I was very negative about them. That was really a key kind of sign to me that something was really wrong in, in my mental uh, in my mental health um, at that time because students were my reason um, for being and for for doing what I did and when I couldn't really I frankly couldn't stand them anymore there was something serious going on there so that second one again is cynicism negativism or uh, depersonalization connected to your workplace and then the third characteristic is feelings of reduced professional efficacy or actual reduced professional efficacy. So the sense of um, kind of why am I doing this? What's the point? I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, those are the things that we look for when we're looking to um, to, to validate a diagnosis of, of burnout specifically. So it's not just being tired. Um, it's not just kind of that end of the semester tired that we all have. We all talk, you know, as faculty members, we'll, we'll casually say that we're burned out all the time. This is, this is more of a, 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 because it comes from the World Health Organization, it is a clinical definition that we're looking at right now. Um, so it's, it's not just being tired. It's not just being kind of annoyed with your students. It's this real, um, this real deeply impactful and personal and often shameful feeling that you cannot do this work that you were quote unquote born to do. Because many of us, when we come into higher education, we come in feeling like we have a calling that this is really, this isn't just a career. This isn't just an industry. This is a calling to do research, to be with students, to, to shape the next generations. So when that starts to go haywire in your head, um, that causes, is a lot of, of self-doubt, a lot of serious um, mental conflict, um, and can cause a lot of physical challenges as well, can, can, um, can exacerbate physical illnesses that you may be prone to. Or, um, you know, for, in my case, I was, I was sick all the time. My allergies were always terrible. There was always something wrong with me, um, for example. So it, it can be really, really, really impactful in your entire life, even though that definition is very specifically kind of bound around workplace stress. Hmm. Um, there's a lot there and, and we're gonna, we're gonna unpack, um, a good bit of that, um, as, as we talk, um, 
Um, but I, I do want to talk about the structure of the book because each chapter is, is a bit unique, offering different kinds of content. So talk to us about the types of content and why you chose to organize it this way. Sure. Um, the The book is kind of a, a unique um, organization in, in general, kind of even within the chapters, because it's really a combination of of my personal stories, the story of the stories from other women specifically in higher education and around higher education who went through burnout or experiencing burnout, and then it's also got. Um, uh, tips from from coaches and from faculty developers, and there's research, primary and secondary research in there. So there's a lot of different voices and a lot of different um, different ways of approaching the content broadly. But in terms of structure of the book, it starts off with that general introduction, which really introduces the reader to to my story and my experience, as well as the idea that burnout is not uncommon, that it is a real defined clinical issue that we are syndrome that we that we can diagnose that it is common in higher education it's in some ways a default mode for faculty these days um, especially since the pandemic Um, it's a um how do i want to how do i want to continue um i totally just lost my train of thought can you make a marker yeah, That's okay. Um, we were talking about the different types of the content and, and you named a lot of it. Um, and then you're talking about kind of the structure of how, how the sure. book opens. <laughs> um, that's okay. That's okay. Sorry. I know this is a conversation. I'm sorry. Um, this is. Yeah. Like you said that in the yeah. beginning. This is a casual conversation. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. I, I do that in my head. Sometimes I'm going off in lots of different tangents. And then I'm like, what were the, where were we originally? <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so you're, yes. The structure. Yes. Structure. So um, yeah. So that introduction just really kind of sets up the basis, sets up the definitions. Um, um, sets up the tone of the stories that you're going to hear. And then the, the first two chapters, chapter one and two, focus specifically on um, the culture of higher education and then identity um, as higher education professionals, specifically women. The book does the book does focus on women, and, and there are a variety of reasons for that. Um, but one of, one of the, the main reasons is when I was looking for contributions, it was predominantly women who were open or willing or able to talk about their burnout experiences. So um, the, the culture chapter first really looks at how higher education as a structure um, is just, it, it, it's just kind of a, a, a breeding ground for burnout in individuals. Um, when we think back to that definition, we think of burnout as a workplace problem. So burnout is a culture problem that impacts individuals. It's not necessarily an individual problem that then impacts the culture. So that that chapter really breaks down and looks at what are some what are some of the aspects of that higher education culture? It's the the pro t- productivity driven culture. Um, it's the competition driven. What are it, so it looks more deeply at some of those elements of of our our culture in higher education. Um, it looks at how you know as part of that productivity culture and as part of that competition culture that we do not in higher education ever want to look quote unquote weak. And that can add a ton of shame for people who are experiencing burnout. So we look really at a lot of those cultural underpinnings that impact not only how burnout kind of manifests, but how it's experienced by people. 
The second chapter is on identity, like I said, focusing specifically on um, on women in higher education. And I look at identity in this case very specifically in terms of cultural identity within higher education. There are so many broad ways we could look at at culture and intersectionality here. I look specifically at at, at, um, things like perfectionism. Um, how that how that impacts who we are as women in academia and how that uh, can feed into into kind of the experience of burnout, for example. Mm-hmm. And then the last four chapters are what I have just started referring to um, as the four pillars of burnout resilience. So these are in my research, in my primary and my secondary research, as well as my own experience. These are four lenses that we can look at our recovery from burnout or how we understand burnout and help us think through how do we reconnect to certain things that help ground us and help us make some core decisions about how we want to continue continue our work lives, continue our professional relationships as we are working through burnout or as we're trying to, attempting to avoid burnout. So those chapters are purpose, compassion, connection, and balance. So each chapter, excuse me, each chapter digs into um, a specific theme. It looks at um, stories from women that I talk to, as well as advice from women who've experienced burnout in that specific, through a specific lens, and we're able to reconnect to their purpose, for example, Um, or we're able to um, find some sort of connection to people or to, to nature or to, you know, an animal that really helped them ground themselves so that they were able to make those decisions that they needed to make as they were moving through their own burnout experience. Um, each chapter offers um, a variety of first-person tales. It off, it also offers first-person advice um, as well as the secondary research. But it also each chapter also has um, activities that you can do to think through um, you know, what is your purpose? For example, if we, if we think about that, that for the, that fourth chapter, um, purpose, what, what, um, what are your, what are you connecting to in terms of, you know, what's your mission? What are you, what's your vision? What are you deeply rooted in and why are you doing, or have you been doing what you, what you do in higher education? Has that changed? Um, has that stayed the same? How do we reconnect to that? How do we connect to that purpose to help us, um, move through the experiences that we're having now. So each of those chapters offers um, a variety of different ways to access kind of the the theme of purpose, compassion, connection, or balance, and then gives lots of opportunities for for thinking through it on a personal level as well. Thank you. That's a that's a really um, thorough overview of, of a lot of the topics we're going to talk about today as, as it kind of lays out the book. And and I um, I did want to note that, yeah, that and you mentioned it in the book that there is a, this is unique, as you said, in the different types of content. There's so many different ways to approach this issue. Um, so I kind of wanted to mm-hmm. um, give uh the listeners who haven't read the book, a little preview of what that is. So talking about methods, um, and you did say that this book does primarily focus on women. Um, who did you interview and, and how did you collect their stories for this project? How you, how did you find them? 
Yeah. And that's a, that's a really great question too, because it was when I initially imagined the book, it it wasn't writing a a book specifically for women in in and around higher education. It just kind of ended up that way. Um, Initially I was requesting um, contributions through some email lists that I was a part of and social media. So I kind of thrown it out kind of wide requesting, um, you know, people's stories um, also kind of advice pieces from coaches and psychologists and faculty developers, things like that. Um, and the majority of what came back was was well mixed in that initial response. Um, but by the time we got, you know, a year later into um, into the actual kind of writing of the book, we f- I found that the majority of people who were willing or able or in a safe enough space to talk with me were women and predominantly white women. Um, so I had a lot of, of um, information and a lot of stories from that population. So from there, I was able to then go and talk to coaches that I knew, women of color, um, to help connect me to faculty members of color, um, of different identity groups. So it would, there was a lot of, um, (laughs) there was, you know, research can be really, really messy. So it starts one way and then it ends up going another way. So, you know, where it started as kind of soliciting stories and and documents, it ended up um, being a lot of really, you know, direct reaching out and, you know, using multiple connections to find people. Um, And I think, you know, it's a very hard thing to talk about. There's a lot of um, personal shame attached to feelings of burnout, I think, specifically, Um, especially for women. We feel like we cannot display any sort of quote unquote weakness. We cannot look like we can't hack it. Um, And, you know, admitting, quote unquote, admitting that you have burnout or that you're experiencing it can be a really shameful um, experience and not something that we really are willing to talk about. So it kind of hides in the shadows. Um, So so finding folks, finding women who are are interested in sharing their stories was also a matter of being, you know, really, really open to um, anonymous stories and being able to talk with people and, you know, really really commit to to sharing the essence of what they're telling me um, while making sure that they remain safe in the in the telling of that book. So that was one of the, the you know, the core concerns that I kept throughout working on the book. And even as it was coming out, making sure that I was doing everything that I could to just do justice to the women who were sharing their stories with us and sharing their advice, because it is such a personal and potentially shameful thing to talk about. Um, you know, what I did find is the, the women that I that I did talk to were all so um, just so eloquent about their experiences and, you know, wanting to be able to, to still continue to grow in this industry that they, you know, that they loved for whatever reason um, as they came into it and just, you know, finding that life takes you in different directions and, you know, thinking about, well, what does that look like? from now on, how do I experiencing that? Do I experience that? How do I process that? A lot of the women I talked to were really just processing what they were going through and what they were experiencing. Um, so I felt really, really lucky to be able to talk to the women that I did also to talk to a variety of, of women who coach other women in higher education to hear their experiences. Um, and what are some of the main themes that, that women come to them to have these conversations about? Um, so it was, you know, the research ended up being really wide ranging, um, and was just a, just a really powerful experience for me to, um, to pull together. Hmm. 
Well, and you, you mentioned it as um, messy um, and, and it is, this is kind of a, you know, really, as you said, very sensitive topic. I'm, I'm, I'm a process nerd. So I, um, I openly admit that on the channel. I think everyone who listens regularly probably knows that about me. Um, and so, you know, in qualitative research, we call that emergent design, this idea that you have a plan, you think it's going to go this way, but especially when you're dealing with really sensitive and potentially, you know, dangerous or unsafe, whether that's emotionally or in some other way, um, topics with folks, then, you know, you, you kind of don't always know where it's going to take you, um, or them. And I've found, um, you know, through my research and even, you know, with, with topics on the channel that I explore that are very personal, very vulnerable topics, um, the feedback that I, that I get sometimes, and I'm curious if you've gotten some of this feedback, cause I can imagine that perhaps it was that the, even just the process of having an outlet, um, and a, and a open, um, you know, ear, sensitive, non-judgmental ear to process with about these topics, whether it's for a research project or, you know, even coming on the channel here and talking about some really difficult scenarios, um, that in and of itself is really powerful and can be almost restorative for some folks as they're, you know, processing themselves and then processing alongside you as, as, you know, the interviewer. Did you, did you have any feedback like that from your participants? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, there were a lot of women who I talked to who were simply like, I can't talk about this to anyone else. I can't share this experience to anyone else. I don't know how to have this conversation with my supervisor or my chair or, you know, my dean, because they can, there's power, there's power differentials there. Um, you know, how, how do I process this experience that I'm having where I'm just really not happy or I'm, you know, it's to the point where I was completely miserable um, when, you know, I was pretty much off the charts on the, on the burnout measures. So finding someone, a, a lot of what I hear and what I'm hearing from readers now is, is the sense of, thank God I'm not alone, that it's not just me experiencing this, um, that, that other people are having this experience that, in, you know, which is, is galvanizing in a way because you're not alone, but it's also infuriating because we all are experiencing this at the same time together alone <laughs> in so many ways. Um, so there was, uh, you know, there was, there was a lot of real camaraderie being built with the women that I talked to um, during those, those interviews. And just, you know, I, like I said, I felt, you know, grateful for being able to provide an outlet um, and also to, to be able to have those conversations in such a way that worked into the project that were able to show the range of what people experience, of what women experience in higher education, um, good, bad, ugly, and why we need to be having these conversations more broadly, because we are not alone. We're not alone on our campuses. We're not alone in our departments. But how do we have those conversations in safe ways? Um, how do we create the safe spaces to have those conversations? And, you know, part of the the main impetus for the book was to, was really for me to give people language to talk about it more. Because I can do lots of these interviews and, you know, share the definition and those kinds of things. But um, the more people have the language and the, the, the thought that they're not alone, the more we can have these conversations bottom up and top down, working from kind of the same base definition. And I think that's really important. You, you write in the book um, about how it took you years 
of your own emotional work to be able to talk about this openly and and candidly and publicly. Um, So can you talk to us about your experience of writing so candidly about your own journey with burnout? Sure. Um, And, you know, it didn't start out as a book. (laughs) It started out really as me kind of as a, as a writer, you know, um, my degrees are in writing. I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a natural writer. I teach writing. It was, it was me processing my own experiences. Um, and I'm not, you know, I've, I'd never really been kind of a, a creative nonfiction writer or something like that. But when I, when I started, you know, it really came from, from the experience of, um, this is a, I think this is probably the way into this is that I went to a conference. Um, the, so I was on in 20, let's see, let's see if I can do the timeline in 2018 is when I was experiencing the worst of the burnout. Um, and in the spring of 2019, I ended up on medical leave, um, trying to figure out what my life was going to look like and, and to get really, to really get physically and mentally healthy, um, going through this experience. And I had, I had already paid for a conference that semester um, for my home discipline. So I just thought, and it was, it was actually in my hometown. So I was able to go home to family. So I went to this conference, even though I was on medical leave. And, you know, I was at the point where I wasn't ashamed of it anymore. And, you know, when people asked me how I was, I just, you know, said, you know what, I'm experiencing clinical burnout and I'm on medical leave right now. And the response to just that simple statement from so many people was simply, oh, my God, I know what that feels like. Or, um, you know, I have a colleague who I'm really, really worried about. Or can we just sit down and have a conversation about this? People just wanted to talk about it. They wanted to be able to have um, someone to connect to you to have this conversation with, um, about burnout. And it just, you know, and it, it, and I hadn't been very vulnerable other than, you know, I'm on medical leave and it, you know, it was kind of public information. Um, but it was really that people would then tell me their stories. And that made me realize just how much, hearing their stories was impactful to my own journey and knowing that I wasn't alone. And if I could tell the story, if I could talk about what it felt like or what I experienced, um, and you know, I'm not special. I'm just, you know, your average faculty member who kind of went through this experience. Um, you know, if, if I can go through it, anybody can go through it. So I was, I was galvanized by that experience that people just wanted to have this conversation and wanted to feel connected to someone who also felt what they were feeling. But there was also this level of anger of, you know, why did I not know what this was going into it? Why was I not prepared to be looking for the signs of this? Why does higher ed push us so far that so many other people that I'm talking to are having the same mental health experience and we're not talking about it. Um, So, you know, that kind of led me into thinking we need to have a bigger conversation about this. And I had, like I said, I had been writing kind of some of my story, like some of my experiences, just kind of journaling, creative non-writing, creative nonfiction, kind of writing the experience that I'd been having because it felt to me like that story could connect with people. Um, 
So it was kind of a combination of a couple of those things happening, my own kind of processing through my writing, um, as well as having these conversations at this conference where people just wanted to tell a story. They just wanted you to hear what they had to say, what they had experienced, or what this colleague that they were worried about was experiencing. Um, so it it's just, it's, it's very strange because I don't think like I'm very like an openly vulnerable person. I, when I was diagnosed with burnout, I went through some very deep, deep, serious therapy to be able to even have those conversations with a therapist or my husband, let alone to have those conversations in person with other people or in, you know, the form of this book. So it, it became this almost, <laughs> it became a campaign for me that if I can share this story, if other people can learn from what I've experienced and be able to have conversations before they get to the point that I had gotten to, then it was worth me, um, me being vulnerable and being open about what I had, what I had gone through. Mm. And, and, and it does come through in the book, this idea of a fundamental, I mean, my, my reading of it was that this was a hugely fundamental shift in your being and who you were as a person before and after that was, that was how I read it, um, based on the way you wrote it. And so, um, uh, yeah, that it, it came through in that. So that idea of, you know, because I, I do feel like writing, um, vulnerably about our own experiences, um, in, in the Academy, especially those that can be very shame, shaming and unknown and risky, you know, it's very counterintuitive <laughs> to the way we're trained and to all the things, you know, of the culture of the Academy. And I, and I do want to dive into some of those pieces. Um, uh, because you do write about that. And and one of the concepts that, that stood out to me that resonated that you draw on throughout the book is Todd Henry's notion of expectation escalation. So can you kind of unpack that for, for listeners and, and, and talk to us about how it fits into the conversation about burnout? Sure. Um, and Todd Henry is a... Um a podcaster and a creative, um, creative industry, um, guy who talks about this idea. And he talked about it in terms of design designers and design work, this idea of expectation escalation, that if you set a bar really, really high, that bar then becomes the baseline, um, for the work that you're expected to do next. So that bar will continue to be pushed, um, to potentially to, you know, levels that you just cannot process or that you cannot deliver on anymore. Um, and I, I thought that was a, a really good way of thinking about academic life and what our expectations are. You know, I talk about in, in, in the book about, you know, my own experience was like, okay, well, you know, you, you got this score on your student evaluations. You have to get this score next time. You have to continue to improve your classes. So these are better. You wrote one article in this journal. Okay, great. You need to get into a better journal. What's the next thing you wrote one book. Okay. Well, why would you just be writing articles now? You need to be writing more books because you've already set that bar high. Um, so I think that we just experience it. We experience that so much. There's, we're never taught in higher education. And I think probably often as women to ever just be kind of content, like what does it mean to just be content with where you are in a particular field or in a career or in your life? There's always the next thing. And I, you know, that's, that's probably American culture as well. Um, that, that kind of pushing to the next best thing or the, the, the personal growth culture mentality that we all kind of have embodied. So it was really this kind of sense of just like 
what are we doing? Um, why are we continuing to push ourselves so hard? Um, and when can, when do we get to be happy with what we've accomplished or kind of where we are and just be safe in that kind of space? Um, and that, that mentality of expectation escalation just doesn't allow that. So when, what happens when we call it out? What happens when we say, okay, um, I'm okay here. You know, I think we, one of the examples in the, in the book is um, a woman who told me about a conversation connected specifically to her institution, um, wanting more women to go up for full professor. They were kind of getting quote unquote stuck at, um, at associate level. Um, and, you know, she was having conversations with women on her faculty who were, you know, kind of content with where they were. They were, you know, maybe they were raising children at a certain stage in their lives and they they liked where they were at that point. And going up to full professor would have added work or expectations that they weren't ready to take on yet because they were, you know, taking care of their families or whatever. So it's just this idea because there's a hoop that you should jump it in a way or you should jump it as high as you possibly can. Um, and then when that baseline just continues to move higher and higher, of course, burnout is going to be a natural kind of end result for, for many of us. Hmm. Um, this is, this is a very timely conversation. I'm having a lot of these with some of my very dear friends in the field as well. And I, and I recently have said, you know, I'm learning the lesson of just because I can, doesn't mean I should, um, and, and it is that idea because most of us in higher ed are very, very capable people. Um, and so, and we're drawn to those hoops. We're drawn to those next things, right? Um, that's, that's kind of how we've gotten where we are. Um, what is it like 0.1% of the population has a PhD. So even jumping that hoop, you know, jumping through that hoop is, is quite, takes a lot and, and quite an accomplishment. And, and that just sort of sets us up, as you said, you know, to keep doing that. And that's what our industry is, is built upon, which, which, you know, leads into this next piece of the cultural elements that I that I want to um, explore that you write about is academic capitalism, and this idea of competition and and um, you know the role that ca- capitalism and productivity and competition and all those things play in in this culture and in this conversation. So, can you unpack that a little bit about how you write about that? Um, sure. So, I think. It- American higher education is fundamentally built on the concept of productivity um, it, that for faculty specifically um, and research productivity specifically for many of us. Um, so how, what are we putting into the world? How many publications do we have? Um, what in, are those in the right publications? You know, are they um, in the right journals? Are we getting the best book contracts? So it's this constant kind of, of um, what are you doing next? What are you doing now? But what's coming next? So you have to keep producing and, you know, expectation escalation feeds into that as well. Um, but productivity is currency, um, just as money is currency in, you know, in a, in a capitalist society. We have this, this reputation um, as currency as well. So, you know, who are you? What are you doing? Are you doing something better than someone else? Are you doing more than someone else? How do we keep up with all of that? Um, and it's that sense of, you know, when you start judging yourself and your worth on your productivity specifically, 
or if you have more publications than someone else in this field, or if you have not been scooped on something, um, you know, your, your worth as a person becomes production um, rather than just kind of your just being worthy for, for being a person and for being there um, and for making contributions. So, I mean, academic capitalism just pushes us to to the brink in a lot of ways um so we're not really we're we're losing so much of of what is powerful about higher education in terms of connection and in in terms of um relationship building in terms of you know things that don't necessarily fall into that capitalist mentality um that that just permeates the way higher education is and its higher education institutions are run today, um, economically, um, culturally. So it, it was important to me to dig into that because I felt like that that combination of, of expectation escalation, which really comes out of that capitalism, academic capitalism piece of it, had shaped who I had become to such a level that I didn't know who I was without any of it. So the sense that you know, if if I've built my entire sense of worth on this one industry's view of what my productivity means, then I have lost really uh, my sense of self completely. And I really had. And I talk in the book about I use kind of, you know, different names for myself at the time. Um, you know, I had kind of become this academic person that didn't really have a lot of, you know, the the person that that my family knew, that my husband knew, that my friends knew, um, she had kind of receded from from my identity, and that was really when I kind of made those connections and were able was able to say, you know, that you know when I am in ap- academic capitalism mode, I am this whole other person who is just completely driven by economic means and by reputation, by productivity, um, things like that. That that wasn't who I wanted to be anymore. Um, and I didn't like who that person had become. Um, and I frankly couldn't sustain it any longer. So I think when we start looking at our culture from, from that lens, from a capitalistic lens, it, it, it's eye-opening in a lot of ways. And it illustrates a lot of the challenges that we see and we complain about and we deal with, um, in ways that, that hopefully are, are eye opening so that we can start combating some of that problem. You, you write about your own internal critiques about focusing on faculty burnout because it is a first world privileged problem. How do you reckon with that yourself and how have others responded to that critique? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was a struggle for me uh, initially because, especially in, in my own experience, um, you know, I felt like I had I had a dream job. I was at my dream institution. It was exactly where I wanted to be. I was working with the high quality students who really wanted to be there and who were engaged in their communities and in their work. And you know, it was really just a dream job, and it was a job that so many other people would have wanted. And I was just miserable for so long. And that was just, you know, so hard, um, so hard to process and so hard to think through. Um, and I wanted to be able to say, um, I've lost my train of thought again. That's okay. (laughs) I'm talking about the, like your own response, um, and reckoning with the idea of it being a privilege, burnout being a privilege problem and you being at your, your, 
you know, your ideal scenario that you were working towards for so long. Yes. Yeah. I was in this ideal scenario and who was it, who was I to complain? Um, who was I to, to, to just to say that this environment was unhealthy, um, in different ways and, and broadly, not just my institution, which is a, was a wonderful, is a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, you know, that, that the industry that I've built my life around, uh, it, it just is, it's unsustainable. It's, it's unsustainable. So this idea that we continue to have to, to deal with and we have to work around becomes central to who we are and why we do what we do rather than how we get out of and what we get out of that experience. Um, so that, I don't think that answered the question. I'm sorry. That's okay. Well, and you, cause you write about this, you write about your reckoning with that idea and then how, when you were talking to others about it, how they responded to the critique of it being, you know, a sort of privileged problem. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I did talk to a colleague about it um, and, and she has a, a piece in the book. And, you know, one thing that she reminded me is that, you know, it, it may be and seem like a first world problem, but, you know, we touch so much. We touch our students. And, you know, when they see they see us working the way we work and living our lives the way we live. And if we're constantly in this expectation escalation and, and wrapped up in this version of capitalism, um, you know, we're we're giving that to them. We're showing that to them as a way of being um, rather than, you know, different, different ways of interacting with the world and not just with, with, uh, with an industry. So, you know, it, talking about faculty burnout, yes, many of us, you know, a vast majority of us have PhDs. We all have advanced degrees, um, but we are also, we're also supporting so much of the future in how we touch our students in how we do our research and what we put out there and how we put it out there. Um, so it was, you know, if it, at the beginning it felt a little squishy to me, but I really do firmly believe that if just because of the way we touch students as faculty and as staff in higher education, that we need to take care of ourselves and we need to be able to show that we can be healthy and that we can, um, navigate our lives in ways that aren't just about productivity and um, and putting things out into the world, but that are also about being members of a community that are about being, you know, whole people inside and outside of work, um, having other interests that we can talk about and that we can um, lose ourselves in and find our states of flow in. So I, you know, I think I, I, I think I got over it pretty fast, actually, kind of thinking about it as a first world problem, just because of of how much academics really do touch students and, and touch the world that our, we, we send our students into. In, in your discussion of academic identity, you acknowledge, and, and you talked about this earlier, so I'm circling back, um, to the lack of racial and gender diversity in this project. Can you talk more about that and what you learned through your conversations with coaches Fatima Williams and Jane Jones? Um, yeah. And, uh, Michelle Thompson as well, you know, uh, a lot of, um, a lot of what I learned from those, those women, um, who are wonderful coaches. And I encourage you to, to, to look at the work that they do, um, you know, was that it wasn't safe to talk about for women of certain identity groups. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't even something that would necessarily cross the radar. Um, you know, initially the book was called professor burnout and, you know, I, several of those women told me that, you know, that for 
black women specifically that wouldn't even resonate they wouldn't even pick it up because you don't do that <laughs> you don't just burn out you keep going you you know you don't admit to something like that or you don't that doesn't happen of course you just do the next thing of course you keep going of course you keep pushing um you would never kind of just say i'm a burnout quote unquote um so i learned a lot about um kind of the safety of who can speak to these challenges. And I, you know, it's, it's also worth noting that, um, I did not, I received virtually no submissions from men, which is another reason that it was about women. Um, so, you know, different populations feeling comfortable or safe being able to talk about these, these, these challenges, these issues, mental health in general, um, come from different aspects of our culture, um, not just higher ed culture, our, our broader culture. Um, so, you know, Fatima and Jane and Michelle were just so, um, so eloquent in their sharing of experiences of women of color and faculty and the women that they, that they work with and what they go through and how amazing these women are, but how they're also just being burnt to a crisp because of the culture um, and because they're continuing to push through. And we know that you know, service, for example, um, more service is asked of women and women of color and specifically and people of color, you know, so their folks are burning out just on, on service and feeling like they need to be, you know, even if, how do I want to say this, um, feeling like they want to be present and they want to be part of all these amazing, you know, service opportunities and, and support the growth of their institution and the growth of their students um, through, you know, DEI initiatives, for example, as just, as just one, as just one piece, but, you know, we're, one person can only do so much mm -hmm. and is still being evaluated on the same scheme that everyone else is being evaluated on. If, if that's fair, if it, you know, if, if the scale itself is fair. Um, so, how do we help people or how do we support people or give people the language to have conversations about their own well-being um, while still helping to figure out what that safe space looks like to be able to have those conversations in general? And another concept that stood out to me um, and so much so that I like snapped a picture of the the page and texted it to one of my closest friends in the field was this idea of the unhappy achiever. Um, this is the first idea you introduce as you start to break down academic identity. Um, so what are the core elements of an unhappy achiever and why is this pertinent to academic identity? Yeah, I kind of just um, run it, ran across that in a Psychology Today article, and it just um, it's a blog post actually, and it just it just really resonated with me because it, in, you know in my own experience, um, achievement was the thing that drove my life, like hitting the next hoop, hitting the next goal, you know, just constantly. There was there was no time for um, appreciating hitting a goal. You know, I remember getting my um, passing my uh, dissertation. Uh, my dissertation viva and you know being just like where's the parade um you know nothing's nothing's gonna happen now i get this certificate i get to graduate and then i get to go right right to work um you know so we don't, we don't spend a lot of time you know experiencing those things emotionally we just we jump to the next thing so you know unhappy achievers are these folks who are constantly walking up the ladder but they're never 
they're, they've never had the opportunity or the brain space to be able to just appreciate what happens because achievement is, is part of their identity. And if they're not achieving, they don't know who they are um, or why they are or what their, you know, reason for being is. So it's um, so it, it just really resonated with me as well because I found myself pushing and pushing and I have to get this book out and I have to do this and I have to do that. And I have to be a director of a center for some reason, even though I don't really know what the work would involve, but that should be the next thing that I should be doing. Um, I wasn't happy <laughs> really in much of it, but I was damn well going to achieve because that was what I did. That's what I have done since I was a young person. Um, so that concept just really kind of, I think, sat with my my identity as well, um, specifically. And I thought that, you know, when we think about imposter syndrome and perfectionism and, and those kinds of things, it just really pulled all, a lot of that together for me. Well, that's, that was my next uh, piece. I, I feel like this is a, since we're talking about women um, and this issue and, and you, you spend a good bit of time in the book and space in the book talking about imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon as it's also called. Um, and so I want to spend some time here. I, I realize it's likely a very familiar concept to many listeners and it was to me, but you know, you dive into it in a little bit more detail in the book. And, and I learned things that I hadn't um, realized aspects of it that I thought, oh, okay, when my friend does this, this is actually that, or when I do this, this is actually that. Um, so I don't like to make assumptions to realize we all are really well versed in it. Um, so, so can you spend a few minutes talking to us about defining it, what it is, and then how it plays out for women, especially in the academy? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a term that we throw around a lot. Um, you know, and, and you, we'd have to go back to the book to look at the, the exact definitions and, and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, it's this sense of um, someone is going to find you out sooner or later, that you don't deserve to be where you are, um, that you're not good enough to be where you are, and that someone will find you out. So it's this kind of constant kind of fear of being found out, um, which is a terrible way to live, um, or that you're not good enough for what you have or where you are. Um, so, and I think that many, you know, many women, you know, that that I talk to, I'll probably everyone I talked to for the book had some story about imposter syndrome, or, or you know, at least at the very least knew someone who had some severe. Um, imposter syndrome. I think it's we we don't. It, part of that, you know, that content piece. We're not we're not taught really to be content with our own skills, right? To trust our own skills. It, it's a very very strange kind of cultural phenomenon, I think, in a, in a lot of ways. Um, so it's very easy for women in higher education. You you pile on that expectation escalation again too, like when imposter syndrome and expectation escalation and the perfectionism and everything is just swirling around. It can be very hard to connect to what you're doing, why you're doing it, and if you should be doing it, um, rather than you're just doing it because someone expects you to do it, or if you don't do it, they'll find out that you're not good enough or that you don't belong there anymore or that you never did. Um, mm -hmm. And you know what a what a what a terrible way to kind of live, live your life and, and live your experience, right? To, to constantly be full of doubt, waiting to be found out that you're not good enough. How, of course, we're going to burn out when we feel like we're never good enough. So how do we help women understand kind of where their skills are, what their, what their strengths are, how they're already doing amazing, amazing things? Um, but also it, it goes back to that sense of, you know, that 
when I was taught, when I start, first started talking about my burnout experiences, how many other people started talking about their burnout experiences? How, you know, we can, whenever you start talking about an imposter syndrome experience, you know, most academic women are going to have their own story, or whether that's a, a one kind of time thing or a much broader kind of psychological perspective. So I think it it's really ingrained in what we do, unfortunately. So the more we can have these conversations about it and not use it as a punchline, oh, it's just my imposter syndrome again, really use it as something that drives who we are. How do we have those conversations about imposter syndrome, about burnout, about perfectionism in ways that we can help shape a culture that is healthy for women and for everyone um, to be working with our students, to be doing the research that's going to change the world. How do we function in that culture? How do we build the culture that we need so that we can all feel that we do have a sense of belonging, that we do good work, and that we're going to be we're going to be powerful in that experience? Hmm. Well, and I see. Um... You know, I see that idea of well, one that thing that strikes me is just the amount, as you were saying, it, it, when I read it again and, and hearing you speak again, I just think about the emotional labor that is happening as with the doubt, all that that like all the emotional labor and mental labor that goes into you know those thoughts of doubt all the time and and trying to prove yourself all the time. And one of the pieces that stuck out to me was this idea of being lucky because I have a friend, a very dear friend um, that goes way back and she's phenomenal. And when she talks about, when I point out her success, she, she often will say, well, I'm just lucky I ended up here where there, you know, there was like so much to be done. I'm like, okay, but no, you, you built an amazing department and like, let's own that. And it wasn't just luck, you know, of the draw here. So that idea of like being lucky. Right. Um, but then also that connection, as you said, to the expectation escalation, what I'm thinking about is also the conversations I've had here on the channel about mentoring, this idea of, you know, that if you haven't done something, you need a mentor because it, why would you know how to, you know, do, do that thing? You haven't done it yet. Um, it doesn't mean that you're not supposed to be here or you're not capable. It just means you haven't done it yet. So you have some learning to do and you are a smart, intelligent person who can ask good questions and figure things out with some guidance and probably rock that thing. So that idea that the next thing, that expectation escalation, the next thing I'm supposed to be completely expert in on my own even though I've never done it or, you know, personally, I, um, you know, that sort of thing. So it, it, to me, it all ties in that imposter syndrome, the expectation escalation, why we need mentors at all levels of our careers in higher ed. Um, and not just in the beginning where maybe there is some level of like idea that like, Oh, you, you're new at this We We're always new at it. If we're continuing to escalate and do more different things, um, and you need guides. You need um, a team of supporters um, around you, a board of advisors, as my previous guests have, have talked about them. And I, I, I try to do as much as I can on on mentoring and, and offering those conversations on the channel because it's so important to, I think, counter some of these ideas of having those supporters and countering, you know, this idea that I'm out here by myself figuring this out and, and I'm filled with a ton of doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, right, yeah, I had I, I don't remember if this is in the book, but I remember talking to a junior colleague um, at another institution, and she was um, voluntold basically that she was going to take over leading the I think it was a first year writing program or something uh, pre tenure, and she said, "Okay, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have a mentor for this. I'm going to shadow for this many years. I'm going to have a coach, right?" And she was she was so 
so strong in saying, yes, but these conditions have to be met too. For Mm -hmm. me to be successful, I need these things. Um, and just, you know, for some, you know, you can imagine like some department chairs imagining the audacity of a junior faculty member to ask for those things that she actually needed um, to be successful in this really, really important role. Um, and, I, you know, I just always think of her as such a powerful reminder that, you know, we need to remember what we don't know and be able to ask for those things that are going to help us grow. Mm. Yes, this is exactly the conversation that I just had. And and then there's an episode with uh, Dr. Vicki Baker about this, and she does a lot of work on mid-career and the mentoring and, and this idea of, you know, we need these structures in place. And she talks specifically about being a chair of a department um, and how, we, you know, and, and that and then other things, other areas of how do we support faculty and other folks around the institution? If, if the level of expectation is X, Y, and Z for them to be successful, then where are the structures for that to, and the supports and the scaffolds to enable them to be successful? Um, and so this is, this is part of, I think, this larger conversation of our culture of expectation, but where are the supports um, and are we supporting faculty and, and, you know, admin and staff in this too, rather than just kind of heaping another task <laughs> on your plate and saying, go do this. Um, yeah. Since so, that capitalism piece too, you know, in, in true capitalism, right, how, how dramatically funding has been slashed for higher education, you know, um, even a lot of private institutions experience the same thing, even if they're not getting state funding, right? We're not giving, we're not funding the level of quality that we expect. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, how do we, you know, you, you you hate to hear that we'll just do more with less because how often can we do more with less? Mm -hmm. Um, So, but, you know, that dramatically is going to impact the context in which someone is working and adding that expectation escalation, the imposter syndrome, adding all of that into it, just it's untenable. Yes. Yes. Um, So I'm looking at my, my vast amount of questions that I still want to (laughs) explore and I'm aware of the time. Um, And so we didn't even really get to dive into any specifically of the four pillars of burnout resistance that you lay out in the book. Um, But I'm going to, I, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna do one on purpose because that, that is something you alluded to in the beginning and 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 I'm gonna quote you here and and let you kind of go where you want to go with this. But um, you do offer the four pillars of burnout of resistance as you as you mentioned at the you know top of the interview and purpose is the first one. And so in that discussion, you write quote Looking back, I see that teaching and advising soothed my fear of being unsuccessful or unimportant or a failure because I was needed in those roles. But being needed or relevant or productive is not a purpose for a career or a life. End quote. Mm-hmm. Unpack that for us. <laughs> Yeah, it's and it's hard to it's hard to hear now, and I haven't been teaching in a, for about three years now because I see now that now from my perspective, you know, teaching and advising are such powerful means of connection to others and to you know the the next generation of adults and of citizens and of leaders. Um, and for me at that time to be thinking that the only reason I liked it was because they needed me. Um, and that made me feel good that someone needed me, um, is, 
it's not a purpose. It's, you know, to be needed. It's the, where, where I had started, I think, you know, prior to my burnout journey was that, you know, my purpose was students and my purpose was advising them and it was supporting them and it was helping them grow. Um, when it, it just, it, it got so watered down to the only point, to the point where it was just, oh, well, somebody needs me. So that makes me feel good. You know, what, a, what a way to live a life or what a, you know, what a sad way to live a life. Um, so it's, it's even, you know, it's kind of hard for me to even think about it right now. It, it, honestly, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to kind of talk about. Um, I haven't read that section in a while, um, for, for some specific reasons, honestly, some of it, I can't, some of it, I can't read <laughs> anymore. Um, after it, it's just, it's, 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 it cuts, um, it cuts mm-hmm. close. Well, I, I want to say here and just affirm uh, you in your vulnerability and in your putting yourself out there and doing this work, um, because I do believe that it's it's connecting with so many people, as as you know, and and um, and again, as I said, as I read it, I could I could just hear and feel that internal shift in your very core and being of who you are. And so I, I just, you know, I want to affirm you in, in being brave and being courageous and, and putting that out there in the world and, and opening up this conversation. This is such an important conversation for so many. Clearly it, it is as, as I think, you know, you're hearing stories and, and it's resonating. And I hope that this interview resonates, you know, with, with folks and, and is able to connect them with your work and uh, with more work that's being done in this area. Um, so thank you. I, I do just want to say that to you. you. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. Is there, we, we are getting close on time. So is there anything that we haven't talked about that you really want to make sure is a part of this conversation today? Oh gosh, there's so much, isn't there? (laughs) There is. I know I have, I still have mountains of questions. I was like, Oh, Dana, I'm, I told you at the top of the hour, I'm a qualitative researcher and I just love to dig in. I'm always like, Oh, Uh, before we were taping, I said that. And I said, I have so many questions. And then I, I don't get to half of them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, you know, and I've said this a couple of times, but I think that the thing that I want to resonate with people most is that if you're experiencing these things, you're not alone. Um, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. It's not that you can't hack it in this culture. It's that the culture is set up for you to experience this pain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it, burnout is a is a work culture problem, not. You know, it's not individuals bringing this into the culture. The culture is causing burnout. It's causing these mental health experiences, and you're not alone. You know, your your colleague down the hall is probably you know could very well be experiencing something diff- something similar, and you just don't know. We don't know what's going on inside people's heads. We don't know what's going on inside their offices. Um, so, you know, I think what what I when I have these conversations, when I have, when I do workshops, it's, it's really for me about, you know, we have to be open to having the conversations with each other. And those conversations can start, you know, in small groups, uh, in grassroots levels, but those conversations then need to go up, but they also need to come down. We need administrators to be hearing these stories and we, we need to, we need them to be asking questions of not how do I fix this? Because you can't fix a culture in one swoop, right? You really have to be looking at a culture broadly. And this is, you know, multiple layers of culture when, if you're looking at an institution or a department, for example, so many layers to dig through. I think, you know, on a, 
on a very personal, on a one-on-one level, I want people to know that if you're experiencing this, you're not alone, you're not broken, and there are people that want to have this conversation with you and that can help support you um, in your in your growth, in your recovery, if that's, if that's what needs to happen, um, that there are people to reach out to, and I hope that you will feel comfortable doing so. Thank you. Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the show today and talking with us about your new book, Unraveling Faculty Burnout, Pathways to Reckoning and Renewal. Thank you, Dana. I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.